Welcome to St. Louis on the Air and this month's Legal Roundtable. I'm Don Marsh. No shortage of legal issues to discuss this month, including a proposal to privatize Missouri's public defender system. A retired St. Louis judge has regrets for a 241-year sentence she handed down for a crime committed by a 16-year-old. And Washington University students look at gun violence and human rights. But the big story has to be the felony indictment for Missouri Governor Eric Greitens. Lots to talk about on that. And we will with attorneys Mark Smith, Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Bill Freivogel is journalism professor at SIU in Carbondale. And Rachel Sachs teaches at the Washington University School of Law. We'll talk about the governor's uh, situation in just a moment or two, but first we have what I guess is popularly called breaking news anymore, and that is the Supreme Court. Bill Freivogel has uh, ruled today on a DACA issue. There's a setback, I think, for the Trump administration. Uh, well, it is. It's not really a, a ruling on the merits uh, of that whole issue, but what had happened was that two federal judges, one in San Francisco and one in Brooklyn, had um, had put on hold had said that President Trump had acted arbitrarily and capriciously uh, when he reversed President Obama's DACA program. And, uh, and so said that for the time being, until the case can, be, can, can work its way through the courts, for the time being, that the Trump administration had to continue to accept renewals uh, by persons in the DACA program, didn't have to accept any new uh, DACA registrants, didn't have to let DACA people back in the country if they had traveled voluntarily abroad, but had to accept the renew the renewals. Um, the 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 just the uh, uh, solicitor general on behalf of the Justice Department uh, and President Trump had said, "Supreme Court, you this is so important. There's so many DACA people violating uh, the law. I think they maybe cited cited seven hundred thousand uh, violating the law. That we need you, Supreme Court, to take this case." right now and decide it right now uh, instead of waiting for the uh, p- federal appeals courts to hear the whole case. And the Supreme Court said, said it wasn't going to do It, it wants a lower court ruling before it gets into right. it. Right. The Supreme Court only does this in like really extraordinary cases, like way back when President Truman sealed the, seized the steel mm-hmm. uh, plants, uh, when uh, President Nixon refused uh, to obey the lower court decision on turning over the, the Watergate tapes. So, so this hardly is in, in that, um, you know, importance. Uh, Rachel, you had indicated that the president's uh, tweets were involved in, in the, the way the court moved today? No, not the way the court moved today, but in the way the district court ruled oh, on on yeah. uh, the question of DACA's rescission for the Dreamers, right? This is another case where the courts are citing um, the president's tweets in their rulings. The administration has said that these tweets are official statements. And in this case, those tweets suggested that the president supports the DACA program and that he attempted to end it for uh, political reasons that are unrelated mm-hmm. to those reasons advanced by his Justice Department. So um, they're being used as evidence of his motivation in ways that undermine his lawyers' attempts to argue their case. I see. Okay. Anything to add to that, Mark? I would just say, move on? I think we're putting off the inevitable, though. I think the Supreme Court is going to uphold Trump's uh, ban down the line uh, because he's now added Venezuela, so it's not all Muslim nations. And I think... Well, that's the right. Uh, oh, well, yeah, right. The DACA that's thing. Right. You're, the, you're talking about the travel also, ban. Yeah, the, yeah, and the DACA thing, we're just postponing it, too. Yeah, I think you're right in saying it's postponing thing. I mean, suddenly the March 5 ending of the DACA program is not like this hard and fast yeah. uh, 
date anymore, so it gives Congress more time to uh, supposedly fix it. But of course, that hasn't worked out very well either. The uh, so you know the the the, the actual compromise uh, proposal for doing it went down uh, because it couldn't get over the. 60-vote threshold in the Senate because President Trump lobbied strongly against it. Well, that's uh, enough of that, I think. We'll, <laughs> we'll stay tuned for the rest of this story. Let's uh, turn now to the governor's uh, situation. And Rachel, I'll start with you, and I'll ask each of you the, the, basically the same question to start with. What is your general take on this whole uh, indictment situation for the governor? Well, there's, of course, a, a lot to talk about, but I think on the whole, this is um, a, a mess that the state doesn't need right now. You know, there's there's a lot that we should be working on. There's a lot that the legislature needs to be focused on and the indictment um, and now the uh, creation of a committee possibly in the legislature, uh, to in the House, excuse me, to investigate these allegations. Um, these kinds of things will uh, continue to be a distraction from other issues which are, are important and need to be addressed in the legislature. But I have, I have many thoughts, of course, about the statute itself. I'll defer to some of my colleagues to start. All right, Bill, what's your general <laughs> position on this? <clears throat> well, I, I, I will concede uh, that th- this indictment uh, that was returned is, is rather short. <laughs> it's one little paragraph. There seem to have been three witnesses. Um, and But on the other hand, that, you know, now we've got the uh, Greitens' uh, lawyers uh, filing a motion to dismiss, uh, basically saying that the law uh, it can't be applied to a situation of, of uh, a situation where a person uh, takes a photograph of a, of a of a person who has consensually taken off her clothes uh, and. Um, in his house, um, and not that I mean, they, it would seem like sort of a tacit admission uh, that the governor did that, but they they do not explicitly admit it. Um, this is the expectation of privacy part of this. This is the uh, expectation yeah. of privacy part, and and what they say is that uh, that the statute says that a, a place where you have a reasonable expectation of privacy is any place, and I'm quoting here, any place where a reasonable person would believe that a person could disrobe in privacy without being concerned that the person's undressing was being viewed, photographed, or filmed by another. So they're saying that if a person takes off their clothes, they shouldn't be surprised if somebody takes the photo of them, even if it's not consensual. I mean, I think where this the, the sort of fairly stunning places takes uh, their, their the governor's interpretation takes us is that if a uh, if a, if a person takes off their clothes in the presence of a spouse, uh, a boyfriend, uh, or a person they've just met, and that person then takes, uh, without consent, photographs or videos and puts them on a computer, that they they already had surrendered their um, their their right of privacy by taking off their clothes, and I think that's a rather extraordinary position, and I think it also. I mean, the statute itself says or filmed, so it's like viewed, photographed, or filmed. So they're separate things. It doesn't say and filmed. Uh, so filmed is a separate deal from just being viewed. Mark, why would that be extraordinary? Well, like, I mean, you just think of some of the fact patterns that it could give rise to. So uh, Bill, I tell Bill, come over. I've got a new swimming pool. Let's go swimming. I've got trunks. 
and we go into, I said, let's just change here in the bedroom. And we both strip down and put on swimming trunks. While Bill may not have a big deal with me seeing him naked, he's not going to want photos taking of him. And, and I mean, and think about, um, I mean, and, and it also goes to this, another case that has kind of come out of nowhere, this Paul Henroyd case, which was a former law student. That's exactly what he was doing. He well, is that, my understanding. Background that for yeah. Us so a he bit. was a, a a law student who the um, what the media said was he invited women to his apartment. He had a camera. It was installed in a clock radio, and in his bedroom, and then would record. And then the allegations were shared those videos with other people. Um, so. There was no suggestion that these women were there against their will. At least I don't know of that. So it was consensual videos taking. Why? Is, how is that different? But he was he, he was, was charged and convicted. He, yeah. And now he is seeking through his attorney to have the governor Greitens dismiss the case because he feels that yeah. the governors did the same thing. It was interesting though because apparently the the, um, the request was given to Governor Nixon, sat on his desk, and instead of now. Re- they, they didn't send it to Greitens. They sent it to Greitens' attorneys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. There, there are real reasons to be very concerned about the implications of the argument in this motion to dismiss. And I, I just want to add that as of, as of 2017, 38 states and D.C. have laws that specifically outlaw this kind of conduct, right, taking and distributing private images of intimate partners without their consent. Missouri does not have such an explicit law. And actually, just a few days before the governor's indictment, the House had been debating whether to move such a bill forward, the Missouri House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. So um, the governor's lawyers are saying right now this sort of behavior is not illegal, is not criminal. Um, And uh, I think it's worth noting that several of the laws in other states specifically talk about the fact that there is an expectation of privacy between intimate partners. So Mm -hmm. the fact that the the lawyers here are saying, look, there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in this situation, um, that has not been the view of of other states. Let me put something forward that I heard over the weekend that, uh, again, sounds fairly Byzantine to me, but uh, we'll see. Um, the the firm that uh, Greitens has hired is uh, is Dowd at Bennett, which uh, also employs a, a man by the name of Jay Nixon, who was a former governor. The circuit attorney's office in the city of St. Louis has Nixon's son uh, as as part of the staff there. The concern is that uh, a a motion could be made to move this ruling on a motion to dismiss to another jurisdiction because of a potential conflict of interest where you have. <laughs> You know, you have a a father and a son on opposite sides of the issue. Move it to Jefferson County or St. Charles County and get a, a, you know, a a judge that's more favorable perhaps to the governor. Yeah. So I heard that also. Um, It it seems like sort of a stretch to me. Um, And uh, but that that doesn't mean uh, that doesn't mean that the governor's lawyers won't try to make uh, make the argument. I mean, I, their their interpretation of um, a place where you have privacy is a stretch to me. Also, mm-hmm. um, this would seem like even more like even more of a stretch. But I mean, think about. Let's imagine you are you're, you're talking, you're watching, you're asking, you hear a public official ask the question: Do you think that a boyfriend uh, or a spouse should be able to take pictures of his wife or girlfriend 
uh, nude and put them uh, on on a computer. I mean, wh- do you without, do you without think, her consent? Without her consent, do you think that any any politician would answer? Oh, that that's fine. She doesn't have an expectation of right to. Of course, they wouldn't say that. No. That no one would ever vote for them. I mean, it just defies common sense. And I think the most charitable argument right now is for the governor's lawyers to say, of course, that would be completely inappropriate and improper, but it's not currently forbidden by Missouri law. Right. I think that's that's the best case they can make. And they've they really have only been saying that it's inappropriate or sorry, that it's um, not currently uh, criminalized. They have not been saying and of course, this would be a terrible thing. And, and this, the statute is the 2015 statute. It was amended in 2000, I think, as of 2017. And uh, and and a couple of things I think there might um, be interesting for listeners. One, this is a motion to dismiss, so they're not arguing facts here. They're just arguing uh, law issues. And and they've specifically said we're not at all. We're, we're still reserving the issue of consent, whether or not that was we're – not, we're not bringing that up now. And we're not um, going to argue yet whether or not anyone was uh, partially nude or not. We're not arguing. All we're going to say mm-hmm. is like what Bill was saying and Rachel was saying, that um, this idea that uh, there's no expectation of privacy in a home when you go in and agree to sex. But I, I just think that – I agree with what everything was said here. I just think that – their their reading seems very. It's a very aggressive reading, and I'm just not sure how anyone would go with it. One other thing that I mean, one other part of their argument, and in this case, I think they're they're accurate, was that the the intent of the legislature in passing the law back in 1995 had been to deal with situations like one out of Buffalo, Missouri, where a person running a a, a tanning salon was taking pictures of the women and girls. Uh, who were tanning there. Uh, so that this is, you know, it was like photos in tanning salons or bath, pub, you know, pub bathrooms uh, that were being taken surreptitiously that they were thinking about. So they weren't really thinking about a situation uh, like the governor's. But the, the pe- word, you got to look toms. at the words, though, too. Yeah. They're thinking <laughs> peeping toms, basically, yeah, is right. kind of what they're talking but, but about. But in this case, an element of it is then you have to distribute the image to someone else. So... Or put the, it on a computer. Yeah, I don't know if you computer, have to. Right. I don't think they're actually alleging says, that he distributed. No, it. right, right. And and the indictment is sort of vague on this, right? All it says is the defendant, Governor Greitens, subsequently transmitted the image contained in the photograph in a manner that allowed access to that image via a computer. So I don't think we know right now whether all they're saying is he took a photo on his phone and it automatically backed up to the cloud, right. or he emailed it to himself for purposes of using it later, which you could argue is a little bit more purposeful. Uh, It's not clear to me exactly what knowledge requirement the statute includes for the the transmission uh, aspect. Whether you you had to, like you were saying before, whether you had to have some kind of intent or mens rea. Right. I think there's a good argument that you don't need to to know that uh, you're you're doing it because the word knowingly appears in the statute in certain places and not there. Um, But it's, it's not... The facts of it have not yet been revealed publicly, so I don't think we know yet what that's going to look like. Let me interrupt the conversation right here. I have to take a break. We'll do that. Come back and continue the conversation on the Greitens case with our legal roundtable panel. This is uh, St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Now back to our conversation with our legal roundtable panel of attorneys, Rachel Sachs, Mark Smith, and Bill Freibel. Bill, you looked like you wanted to add something. <laughs> I, I was just going to add that the one other thing that the governor's lawyers and the governor are arguing in this motion to dismiss is that because this, this um, law uh, that's, uh, that's being applied against the, uh, the governor it was basically for peeping toms, tanning salons, bathroom photography that uh, and when the legislature passed it and because there's this doubt that they are raising about who you know what is the reasonable expectation of privacy in a situation like the governor uh, was involved in um, that because of those doubts you can't use it as a criminal statute you can't convict somebody of a crime on it because whenever we're talking about a crime and you're going to lose your liberty it has to be really clear that something applies a law applies and makes something makes a particular activity criminal and you know that basically it hasn't been applied in this situation before except for maybe in our, our the case of our Washington U law school mm-hmm. stripper this is we're talking about a class D felony here uh, and I've heard uh, some lawyers commenting on this over the weekend in which they were saying, even if you were convicted on a Class D felony, he would uh, probably do no jail time because it's a first-time offense. Uh, and, uh, Rachel, you're shaking your head. You don't think so? Oh, no, just just that I'm, I'm not an expert on oh. uh, these particular uh, – uh, the sentencing aspect of this. So I wouldn't want to, to weigh in unduly. I mean, I think it's pretty likely he would either get – no, if he were if he were convicted, he would get no jail time or very little jail time. The other day, I was looking through all the jail times that the Watergate defendants served, and hardly anybody served more than six months, for example. So, you know, white, even big white collar crimes don't oftentimes end up in really long. But if he was convicted, I mean, one implication could be if there were impeachment. So, uh, I was looking at impeachment in Missouri because I, I didn't really know what the rules were, and apparently. Impeachment in Missouri starts in the House of Representatives, kind of like the federal system. But then it doesn't go to the Senate. It typically goes to the Supreme Court unless um, it's the governor or one of the Supreme Court justices. And then you have a panel. The Supreme Court appoints a panel of – I think the, the, the phrasing was something like uh, seven eminent jurists to hear it. Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, seven justices. Yeah, uh, and then, and but you need, but there was a Supreme Court case with the uh, with the Moriarty, wasn't that her? Yeah. Um, who was impeached? Where they kind of said you need to have a conviction. Mm-hmm. Now, I've seen some criticisms of that decision, saying you, you Supreme Court are restricting yourself, but um, uh, but this would uh, fall within that. So you know, you still got to get to the point where. The House of Representatives decides to impeach him. But my question is: forget impeachment, forget resignation for the moment. If he were convicted and didn't know, even though he did no time, could he still serve as governor as a convicted felon? I think if he was not impeached, he could. I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. I saw a response. I, I know you all have on Singles Public Radio website that he would automatically be removed, and I don't know if that's true or not. Okay, well, I'll, I'll keep that, that, a, con- <laughs> that a conviction would automatically remove him. All right. We have a, a question uh, via Twitter here from Moore writes, is it possible this could be a stretch of the fact that Missouri is a single, cons- uh, single consent recording state? That is, you can record a phone call without the other person knowing so long as you own the phone. Well, it is true that, that Missouri is a single consent audio recording state. Uh, 
but it's really not um, it's really not consent that's that's at issue here. So uh, you know maybe the you know the governor wouldn't have been uh, wouldn't have been violating the single party consent uh, law, but he he is accused of violating the invasion of privacy law. They're two just separate statutes. Anything else on the Greitens case? Well, we also potentially had the FBI snooping around. And so, I mean, we all, I, you know, we've got this. This is the part that everyone is paying attention to because they can understand it and because it's so salacious. But um, I think there's the money stuff that is what my sense is what the FBI is looking at, this dark money for uh, and where it's coming from and whether or not they're Un- unrelated to the yeah. case at hand. And who's paying for the lawyers and all that kind of stuff? I'm, I, I don't know. I've not heard anything. I mean, there are a lot of uncertainty, a lot of questions that are not answered by what we know at this point. Like, for example, the indictment contains the initials uh, that are the same as the victims referred to in the indictment. So, does that mean that she testified, and or does that mean was did she actually say anything? Uh, would she have had to at least verify the recording her husband had taken? Um, you know, did she testify any further? Um, uh, does 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 the circuit attorney have the have uh, the the photo? It's, that's not entirely clear to me. You know, do, is the have authorities obtained any kind of uh, surveillance tape? Inside the governor's house, the motion to dismiss mentions the surveillance tape. Have they obtained any kind of, uh, you know, his emails or his um, or or his com- or his computer uh, or s- cell phone that would have had this on it? I don't think we know any of. We don't know any of these things. But Gardner has to have something. She's <laughs> doesn't she? She's got to have mean, enough to have probable cause. Exactly. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and she's being charged, of course, of just making this as a a political uh, a political move, if you if you will. Okay. Well, there's so much we don't know, but uh, we'll we'll be learning a lot more, I'm sure, in, in the time ahead. It was interesting that uh, the, the 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 national GOP governors don't seem to want to spend much time with. Uh, uh, with left the their executive uh, group, right, right. right. Yeah. So you know they were having a meeting, and and uh, he, he he was uh, he excused himself because I don't think they wanted to be seen with him. Mm-hmm. You know, back also on the impeachable offense. Do you think it would matter that this occurred before he became governor? I mean, could say he was convicted. Could you say, well, that happened before I was governor, so it's not an impeachable offense now? I don't know. I mean, it, could, it probably would be defense yeah. that he would that he would try to mount if if he were uh, if he were impeached. <laughs> and I mean, his lawyers are parsing this stuff. I mean, that that motion I thought was really interesting. And and you know, this is what lawyers do: they pull apart statutes and look for every little thing. And I thought it was pretty well done. I, I'm not sure I'm buying it, but I think it was pretty well done. And, I mean, I think something uh, like just moral turpitude can be enough. Uh, to uh, impeach, and so some an activity yeah, the, like this before you were governor. Yeah, but the Supreme Court said it had to be a conviction. Although when you look, I think you're right because when you look at the the statute about or the Constitution about impeachment, it says habitual drunkenness is one of the, and that's not illegal. It's just moral shortcoming. Right. 
Let's let's move it, Rachel. You look like you're poised. Yeah. Sure, and and I'll just say that there, the fact that there's any uncertainty about whether this conduct of taking photos of intimate partners without their consent and threatening to release them publicly, the fact that there's any ambiguity about whether this is um, illegal, I think is a good sign that Missouri should should move forward. The the House um, and Senate should move forward with this legislation, and the governor should sign it. Is this the revenge porn legislation right. that yes. we're talking about? Yes, it is. And they're right in the middle of that now, as I understand it. Yes, and I, I there may be some questions about whether there will be amendments to the legislation in light of the governor's conduct. Yeah. Okay, let's let's move on to some other things. Other things to discuss. Um, we'll be back to the Greitens case, I'm sure, in the months ahead. Uh, a big uh, case today before the Supreme Court is hearing arguments uh, that involves a lot of people in Illinois. It's hearing the case challenging that non-union public employees must pay union dues it's a precedent uh, involved here set by the Supreme Court 40 years ago. This this sounds like right to work. Yeah, it is yeah. right to work in the public context, you know, uh, public union context. Right. And so, so this is a uh, – in a, this case which comes from Illinois and which has been ginned up and – and, and and brought uh, with the cooperation of uh, uh, Public Policy Institute over there, Illinois Public Policy Institute and its uh, and its affiliate, the Liberty Justice uh, uh, Consortium. Um, it's you know directly aimed at the power of public employee unions. So what the issue is, uh, even if you're not a member. Of if you're a public employee, and even if you're not a member of the union, you still have a fee taken out of your out of your paycheck. It's called an agency fee, and it's to pay. It's to compensate the union for uh, bargaining on your behalf. Uh, and um, so, what Janice, who's a, a public employee in Illinois, says is that uh, I, I I object to this being taken out of my. Um, out of my pay, I also object to the the. I don't I don't want a union trying to get more money for me or my fellow employees from the state, uh, and therefore they are violating my free speech rights. Right. Uh, I have a free speech right in connection with any public policy decision, and uh, pay and benefits for for public workers is a public policy decision, and we have a Supreme Court that has four and probably five justices who are very sympathetic to that argument. Um, uh, you know, the guy who's usually in the middle, Justice Kennedy, is not really in the middle on this case. He's a really strong advocate of, of, uh, of free speech in this, in this kind of context. So the, the, this, this similar issue was before the Supreme Court a couple of years ago. They ended up divided 4-4 after Justice Scalia died. Uh, they would have had five votes at that point. Uh, almost certainly to um, you know to come out against to overturn the forty year old precedent and to and to really sort of put a, a dagger in the heart of public uh, public employee unions, uh, but he died. Then they split four four. He had to have a new case come before him. This is a new case. Apparently, Gorsuch didn't say anything in the oral arguments today. Rachel says uh, so. Um, uh, but I think everybody expects Gorsuch to come down with the conservatives and throw out this precedent. Moving on, did Rachel, did you? 
Yeah, so I, I just wanted to give a shout out to a podcast hosted by one of my colleagues uh, at WashU Law, Dan Epps and his colleague Ian Samuel. Um, and they do a podcast called First Mondays, which is about Supreme Court cases. They profiled this case and had an interesting amicus brief uh, that they talked about, which is filed by two law professors who often take positions favored by the conservative wing of the court, these professors. Eugene Volokh and Will Bode, they take the position that there's no First Amendment right to avoid subsidizing speech you disagree with. Compelled subsidies of speech happen on a regular basis, and they're not unconstitutional. So as an example, you know, our, our tax dollars fund the government. Even when it takes positions or does things we disagree with, the government uses tax dollars to fund private organizations who may engage in speech people disagree with, like public defender services or even crisis pregnancy centers. And so uh, uh, Epps and Samuel, they have a hypothetical where they say, look, the state could get around this rule ruling that the fees themselves are unconstitutional by just taxing public employees and using that to fund the unions to engage in collective bargaining. That wouldn't be unconstitutional. And so uh, the question is whether the ability to do that includes the ability to require union dues in the way that we do now. Now, one other thing I might add is that if you see this in the larger context, what this really represents is that is that conservative policy institutes and legal institutes have become enormously powerful uh, in, in, in recent years. I remember when I went to Washington in 1980 to cover – uh, for the Post-Dispatch, uh, it was just the beginning of the dawning of this uh, this growing power of uh, conservative think tanks. And, and in Illinois, the Illinois Policy Institute and all of its arms has got a tremendous amount of power, even to the extent that they have uh, they have a set of – they're connected with a set of newspapers and the Illinois radio network uh, and run pro-Governor Rauner propaganda in those uh, in those newspapers and on that radio network uh and and pawn it off as actual you know unbiased news the governor rauner has been a big uh you know proponent of the illinois policy institute and he was a, he was actually involved in the in the initial attempts to bring this issue to the us supreme court okay you mentioned public defenders and i will We've touched upon this many times before, the uh, effort to uh, privatize the public defenders here in the state of Missouri. It's actually going into effect in one county, as I understand it. Texas County this week is going to have to uh, move in this direction, basically because uh, they've got too much work and too little money to do the job properly. Um, As I say, there seems to be a lot of traction building for this. Would we anticipate, do you think, that the legislature might, might in fact, uh, privatize the, the system? Well, it looks – I mean it appears as though there are some members of the legislature who think that you could save money by doing this. I'm not exactly sure how how they actually save money in the long run. It appears to me as though the public defenders are paid less per case than, than our private attorneys. Um, but I mean what the state of Missouri should do is they should fund its, their public defender system and they – this has been a bipartisan failure to fund it. You know, It goes to Jay Nixon. It goes – uh, actually, actually, uh, Greitens has been better than Jay Nixon in funding the uh, the public defenders. Uh, so, but but still, their the funding is way too low to you know to provide the constitutional right of a person to have a lawyer when they might you know when they might be putting lose their liberty. There's also a question as to whether there are enough lawyers in rural Missouri to right, right. Uh, to actually to get actually the job done. So yeah. there is a, a proposed bill that would say. 
the public defenders are only going to handle the Class A and Class B felonies and all other stuff, which apparently, I didn't know this, was it's something like 88% of the workload would go to private attorneys. And um, But um, as been mentioned, the ACLU is suing. And, and when you read their brief, it's very interesting. They're not talking about caseload. They're talking about workload. And they're saying you can't just look at the number of cases. You should look at how much time a lawyer should spend with each case. And then let's look at that. And they they were saying something like uh, Missouri public defenders have their workload, their workload, not their caseload, is something like 250 percent of what it mm-hmm. should be to, to actually – and as a result, people can't – Indigent clients cannot see their lawyers, so they stay in jail longer um, while they're awaiting trial. And it's so it's a lot of this stuff that we've seen in other jurisdictions where poor people are just getting staying in jail because they're poor. Got to take another break. We'll do that now. Come back with our legal roundtable panel, Rachel Sachs, Mark Smith, and Bill Freivogel in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back once again as we continue the legal roundtable panel discussion with Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Rachel Sachs. I'm wondering if the uh, if the gerrymandering issue is is reaching a point where there might be some sort of national consensus. And I'm basing that on what's happened in Pennsylvania recently, in which the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, um, refused to rule for Pennsylvania Republicans seeking to overtain the state Supreme Court's redrawing of con- uh, congressional districts. People seem to think that we might be leaning toward having states, individual states, deal with this as opposed to uh, any kind of a national commission or something. Well, that might be. But I, the U.S. Supreme Court taking that action in the Pennsylvania case, I don't think it tells us anything about right. how will they rule in the two federal cases that they have before them, um, uh, one from Wisconsin and the other from, I think, Maryland. Um, and Because – the reason that the Supreme Court doesn't want to get involved in the Pennsylvania case is it was decided by the state Supreme Court on, on state constitutional grounds. And so it would be only in very unusual circumstances uh, that would be too complicated to explain that, that the U.S. Supreme Court would find an issue that they really have jurisdiction over. It's a state issue, and they don't want to get involved in it. Uh, but, I, you know, it's where the whole redistricting and gerrymandering issue goes will very much depend on what the U.S. Supreme Court says in the Wisconsin case and the other case that they have before them. And we'll have an answer to that later this year. In that Pennsylvania case, um, they didn't really issue an opinion. They said the opinion's to come because there's time um, restrictions. So um, you you may be right. There, There may be some really interesting reasoning in there that smart lawyers could use in other states under – but every state constitution is different. I suspect this is going to be very uh, particular to whatever Pennsylvania's constitution says, but it's a different approach. And so maybe people will start looking at their state constitution, see if there's something they can use within that to challenge um, the redistricted and move it forward. But then you still got to find a, a state Supreme Court that would be – open to that argument. Another case that uh, a retired Missouri Circuit judge would like to uh, the Supreme Court to rule on 
concerns uh, a sentencing of some years ago in which she sentenced, this is just uh, former uh, Judge Evelyn Baker, sentenced a 16-year-old to uh, 241 years in prison for an armed robbery. That's a pretty uh, excessive sentence, a lot of people might say. But she has regrets over that now, and she would like the Supreme Court to actually, um, you know, make it right. Is this something that the U.S. Supreme Court would likely get involved in a case like this? Yes. Well, so the background here is that a few years ago, the Supreme Court held that the Constitution prohibits imposing a sentence of life without parole on juvenile offenders who did not commit homicide. That was a case called Graham v. Florida. And in this case, uh, Bostick was sentenced to 241 years in prison for armed robberies he committed at age 16. So he's in this category of juvenile offenders who didn't commit homicides. And the question is whether states can basically circumvent the ruling that life without parole isn't available for them by sentencing minors to hundreds of years in prison. So he's not going to be eligible for parole until he's 112 years old, I read in one of these news articles. Um, And you could very much imagine that the the court would want to um, sort of clean up some of the uncertainty left behind by this ruling. And I think they have actually indicated some interest in the case because the uh, the, the the same week that Evelyn Baker wrote her op-ed in the Washington Post saying that she regretted what she had done, um, the uh, Supreme Court asked the Missouri Attorney General's office to file a response to the appeal uh, that's before them. When the Supreme Court does that, it shows that they that they have paid attention to it out of the thousands of other cases that are going in front of the justices all the time. Uh, so oftentimes that 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 is a precursor to the Supreme Court uh, possibly hearing the case once they get a response from the state. But just to make sure people understand, this is only for juveniles and it's only for, um, you know, the equivalent of a life sentence, you know, something like 120 years or 112, whatever. So it's not – we're still going to have – even if the Supreme Court would take this up, you could still have – I think, you know, long sentences, it just can't be something where there's no chance that this person would ever get out of prison. She also cites something else that we've been hearing a lot about lately, and that concerns brain development in juveniles. And uh, this is apparently quite a serious issue because the brain is not fully developed and uh, they're not responsible for a lot of things that they do. And the Supreme Court takes this seriously. That was really the part of the rationale for the Supreme Court decision saying you can't execute juvenile murderers and you can't give life sentences uh, without parole to, they, to they, juveniles. In yeah, Graham, the, they cited the, the lack of maturity, the, the vulnerability to negative influences, and the um, that their character is not well-formed. But drawing on some the of the science, yeah. yeah. Well, it's getting a lot of attention, uh, needless to say, at this particular time. Uh, Bill, I'm going to turn back to you because uh, in your Gateway Journalism <laughs> Review, you had uh, – uh, expressed some concern that uh, Donald Trump appealed for due process in the Rob Porter case. Porter, of course, being his former aide, accused of uh, of, of having uh, physically abused his two wives. Um, you expressed some concern over the use of the term due process by the president. What do you mean? Well, I mean, he was just – the way he uses it is both uh, misleading and hypocritical. Um, so, I mean, in due pro- so due process, you can't – a state, the government, the government owes you uh, due process of all. They can't take your liberty, 
your property or your life away from you without due process of the law. You know, that, that word due process is like one of the most important phrases in the Constitution. It's the basis for the Bill of Rights applying to the states. It's the basis for individual autonomy of deciding who to mar- whom to marry, uh, wh- whether to be able to control your body. Uh, it's an incredibly powerful word. Uh, it also it, – it basically means like procedural – also means procedural fairness. Uh, I mean, Donald Trump was the person who owed Rob Porter procedural fairness. Uh, so don't don't be complaining about procedural fairness. Plus, the president, well, how much how much fairness do you owe to a person who's been accused by his previous wives of of abusing them uh, when the person has been given a year of of temporary security clearances to view the most important secrets that come before the president? I mean, he's had he's had a lot of due process. The FBI investigated. That's due process. Uh, the uh, White House was reviewing the FBI investigation. That was due process. Plus, it's interesting that the president is all for due process, uh, but he's, he, his lawyers, meanwhile, are in a court, a federal court in New York, saying that one of the persons who accuses him of, uh, of attacking her uh, sexually, one of the dozen or more people who, who makes that accusation, 19, sh- I think. should not have any due process because he's president and he shouldn't have to answer those kinds of uh, those kinds of claims. Actually, the woman has filed a, defama- a libel case against, a defamation case against him. Um, uh, he shouldn't have to answer that because he's, uh, he's a president. Uh, well, you know, the Supreme Court made uh, Bill Clinton answer uh, Paul Jones' case. So, you know, due process, uh, he, plus, you know, let's talk, take in the broader sort of Me Too movement. I mean, the due process is something that a that the government owes its, its citizens. It's not something that a civil rights movement owns owes to uh, you know the people who have been violating people's rights. Uh, the civil rights movement didn't own George Wallace due process. Mm-hmm. A newspaper, I think, owes a person the kind of you know sort of like due process, the fairness, fairness of you know tell us whether you did this or not. But uh, I, I just thought he was misusing the word. Any thoughts on that, Rich? Yeah, just that, uh, you know, as as Bill said, when we use a term like due process, that's a legal term. And those of us who are lawyers know that mm-hmm. it has a particular meaning associated with it. And when it's being used more generally, it really is being used to talk about, as Bill was saying, procedural fairness. But But Porter had a lot of process. There was an extensive FBI investigation that lasted for months. They interviewed the parties. They gathered evidence. And that seems to be true for a lot of these cases that we're seeing, right? There are internal investigations at a number of these media entities that are leading to the dismissal of these particular um, uh, uh, perpetrators. Or we're seeing um, extensive media reporting leading to such investigations, um, and people are being fired, but very few of these people are being criminally investigated and deprived of their liberty. So, so um, the amount of process you are due uh, differs depending on the situation, typically. And so, here, where we're talking about letting someone go from here, their their job at the White House, where they're privy to state secrets, the level of process you would need may not be, you know, a conviction in a court of law. Really opened up a can of worms, didn't it, uh, yeah. with regard to uh, not not only uh, Mr. Porter, but uh, scores of other employees in the White House who have not, don't have those security Such clearances. Such as his son-in-law. Such as his son-in-law, who who may be in some difficulty yeah. from what you uh, it seems what we to read. be. Yeah. Okay. 
All righty. Uh, I'll turn to my uh, Washington University friends here with regard to a story that just caught my eye, get your reaction to it, a research project uh, being carried out by law students at Washington University examining U.S. government response to gun violence within the context of international human rights law. A uh, very interesting approach. It would be interesting to see how that turns out. But uh, what what do you make of this uh, this process, uh, Mark? This is not my area of expertise, uh, but I looked at this international inter-American human rights system, and my understanding is that the U.S. government has said we are not bound by their decisions, that we view this organization as setting aspirational standards. I think having said that, the U.S. government will often – respond and and but it's not like a court of law where you have a judgment that you can execute uh, Rachel you get a different view oh, I was just going to give a little bit more yeah. more background for readers who might not be familiar for listeners who might not be familiar with what's happening here basically uh, uh, this initiative uh, is being spearheaded by one of my terrific colleagues, Leila Sadat. She's an international law, um, international human rights expert. And basically the question here is, look, the U.S. has certain obligations under international human rights law and whether the government's failure to take action to attempt to prevent and reduce gun violence is a violation of our obligations under these international human rights instruments. And um, uh, many students are working with this initiative in in seeking to answer that question, and I think some of them are my own, so uh, that would be lovely. Well, two areas that are cited specifically which are interesting, uh, they uh, look at the fact that the uh, Congress allowed the assault weapons ban to expire, and they're also looking at uh, allowing concealed carry permits valid in one state to be valid in all states at that point. And they think that this may lead to a violation of those international international rights. Yeah, that, that latter law, the Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act of 2017, which has passed the House, I think is something people should really pay attention to uh, because, you know, it basically is saying that a state like uh, New York or California or neighbor Illinois that has pretty uh, tougher uh, gun laws will have to basically follow the laws of the more lax states and let people who have concealed carry uh, in other states conceal and carry in their states. So, for example, New York City could not uh, ban people from other states carrying guns at the New York e- at the New Year's Eve uh, celebration. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing about this that about the whole gun control argument that really drives me crazy is, you know, we've talked a lot of times about the Heller decision where the Supreme Court said there's a constitutional Second Amendment individual right to have a gun in your house to protect yourself. Um, but, the, you know, the NRA has taken that to say oh, any kind of gun law is going to violate my Second Amendment rights. It's not true. Very specifically said in the in the decision by Justice Scalia, Scalia right, you still yeah. can have concealed carry laws. You still can outlaw machine guns. You still can outlaw sawed off shotguns. Uh, you still can, you can outlaw still ban your assault schools. rifles. Yeah. Do you see anything developing in in, uh, in the wake of the uh, that horrific shooting in Florida likely to change national thinking on on Gun control. That's a political question. I mean, it, and it's going to be up to state. Well, you were in for office once. <laughs> no, we know how that came. I out, think so. these students are a thing that's different. And if this, if these amazingly um, uh, well-spoken students can can really have their movement, was it never again movement uh, spread and become almost like if, if some of these March and April days that they have set aside become almost like a national student strike. Uh, I think it could have an effect. I mean, the first graders 
uh, in Connecticut, Same they couldn't go make yeah, an argument. But these are very well-spoken high school students, and people are listening to them. And they've already had quite an impact on corporate partners mm-hmm. of the NRA who have um, disassociated themselves or, or dropped their affiliations with the group. So, um, And we've seen uh, Governor Scott in Florida come out and take certain positions that are more favorable to what they've been asking for. It remains to be seen, obviously, whether those will go forward um, and whether anything will happen at the, the federal level. But I, I wouldn't count them out. Well, some people are taking them seriously when the immediate reaction was to charge some of these kids with being uh, actors who are, you know, not really involved in the incident, but were just brought in there to be uh, emotional and to try to change public opinion. I mean, Dana Lesh is a you know, spokesman for the NRA and nationally you know, spoke to the CPAC group, was on the, uh, the ABC News program over the weekend. And the, the way in which she misleads about what the NRA's position is, 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 is really sort of disgusting. She's a former Missourian, by the way. Yes, yes. Okay, that just about wraps up all that we have. Any final thought in 10 seconds that anyone feels we should have said and didn't? I think we got to everything. Okay. okay, well, let's end it right there. My thanks to you, uh, Mark Smith, for being with us once again. Yeah. Rachel Sachs, great to see you. Thank you for being with us. Thank Bill you. Ogle, same to you. Good to have you with us, and we'll get together again in about a month. Archive versions of past St. Louis on the Air programs available for download or podcast at stlpublicradio.org slash stlonair. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh. <laughs>